Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Parkin. Hi, I'm Scott Parkin, co-host of the Green and Red podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Bob Bazanko, and we're excited to have a special guest on today, Professor Noam Chomsky to talk about the historical and political legacy of the new left and the radicalism of the 60s and 70s. We did a show on the new left last fall that was one of our most popular episodes. So we want to revisit today with someone who was central to that period. We're going to discuss the new left in two ways. It was an intellectual and academic school of thought that changed the way we look at US history. And it was an activist movement where People, especially college students, went to the streets to fight for racial equality, participatory democracy, and an end to the war in Vietnam. Welcome to Green and Red, Professor Chomsky. Glad to be with you. Thank you. I'm going to start with a question on the new left, which is uh, to go back to an interview that you actually did in 1971, where you said the re-radicalization of the 1960s did surprise me very much. And for that reason, I have little confidence in my own guesses about the new future. In, about the near future. So the new left caught you by surprise coming out of Cold War, McCarthyism, the end of ideology, consensus history, and American exceptionalism. But then the work of people like C. Wright Mills and the scholars that studies on the left came forth with ideas like the power elite and corporate liberalism and the economic motives behind US policies. What did you think of them and were you surprised by the impact they had? Well, the impact was in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, and it was pretty localized, it was Wisconsin mainly. It had some effect beyond, but didn't get as far as Cambridge where I was. <laughs> but I mean, of course, we knew about it, read it, interested in it, but it wasn't part of activist life in the early 60s. In fact, very little was. Remember that the early 60s were the period where uh, the Kennedy gang came in and the excitement then was uh, Camelot, uh, Kennedy, uh, all the exciting new prospects. Uh, there actually was in, I was in Cambridge, there was a, a Eastern Airlines, now defunct, had a shuttle that went from Boston to Washington in the morning came back in the evening. And in the morning, all the Harvard and MIT professors were lined up to go to Washington to have lunch with Jackie, talk about Proust and tell Jack how to run the world, you know, come back very excited about how this was a new exciting world in which we smart guys are technocratic and meritocratic elite as they call themselves are gonna handle everything. I mean, that was the intellectual atmosphere. I was, uh, my own concerns in those days were primarily the Vietnam War, uh, 1961, when Kennedy started escalating the war. It was virtually unknown. You could find out about it in the back pages of the New York Times if you read small items carefully. But uh, just trying to get some limited interest in the war was almost impossible. I mean, I was literally giving talks in uh, some neighbor's living room to two or three people they could round up, or giving a talk in a church with half a dozen people, you know, straggled in, uh, maybe a drunk from the streets, but you just couldn't do it. If we wanted to have something at the university, we'd have to put together a, a, an event that had half a dozen items, you know, Venezuela, Middle East, this, that, and the other thing, maybe we'd sneak in Vietnam, somebody would show up, but absolutely no interest. Just to give you an example, in, uh, you may recall that in 19, February 1965, considerably later already, uh, McGeorge Bundy, who was then National Security Advisor, uh, basically launched the war against North Vietnam in February 65, announced it. He was invited to be the uh, 
a commencement speaker at the June commencement at Harvard. A couple of grad, I happened to be at Harvard then a, a year, year off. I was at the Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard. So uh, a couple of graduate students decided to put together a very mild petition, boringly mild, uh, saying uh, maybe it's not a nice idea to invite Bundy to give the commencement address just after having effectively declared war on another country. And they asked me, they couldn't find anybody in the faculty to help, so they asked me if I could find a couple of faculty members to sign on. Almost impossible. Actually, I, I got one person to sign. It was B.F. Skinner. And the reason he signed was to irritate his colleagues. It was very <laughs> reactionary. <laughs> he just thought if he signed this, he could irritate a lot of people. So that was Harvard in 1965. Was there a little better? The main kind of faculty peace groups around Cambridge were at MIT, Salvaluria, old anti-fascist emigre from the 1930s, 1940s, a couple of other older faculty. They had a uh, faculty peace group and we were able to get to the point of you know, putting ads in newspapers, things like that. But among the younger people, it was very hard. Uh, in fact, just to illustrate, you may, 1965, October 1965, there was the first international day of protest against the war in Vietnam. So we figured we'd do something. We'd have a march from Harvard Square to uh, the Boston Common. The Boston Common's the place where anything goes, sort of, you know, you have public meetings, like Hyde Park in London. So we had the march and uh, there were supposed to be a couple of speakers. I was one of the speakers. It was broken up by counter demonstrators, mostly students, uh, very angry, you know, smashed it up. Um, a lot of cops around, state troopers, but the only reason there wasn't, they hated it, but didn't want people to get killed on the commons. So they sort of calmed it down. But if you look at the Boston Globe the next day, main liberal newspaper in the country. Front page story, you know, picture of a wounded veteran, uh, denunciation of all of these uh, commie rats who are daring to question the morals of our country. This is 1965. South Vietnam practically destroyed by then. Yeah. Yeah. The next international day of protest was March 1966. So we figured can't have an outdoor meeting, so we'd do it in a church. We got together in the Arlington Street Church. Church was attacked. Uh, a lot of cops around. Uh, uh, throwing tin cans and tomatoes at the church. And I happened to be standing next to a police captain outside, and I said, can't you guys do something about it? And shrugged. And, and he was hit in the face with a tomato pretty quickly cleared the group. But you know, that was March 1966. It's, you know, South Vietnam was literally almost destroyed by then. You still couldn't get anything going. A year later, a year or two later, it changed. But it was very slow and late. And uh, same was true on other issues, like... Uh, March 1965, I guess, uh, Howard Zinn, who was a good friend, uh, he and I went down to uh, take part in a civil rights demonstration in Jackson, Mississippi. This is after Martin Luther King's, you know, I Have a Dream and all the rest of it. March, I was 65. Uh, the demonstration was wild. I mean, uh, state troopers were beating demonstrators bloody, you know, uh, trying to flee to the 
steps of the federal building where federal marshals were lined up, not to protect the demonstrators, to throw them back into the streets. You know? I remember demonstrators getting together in the evening in black churches and singing hymns and trying to get up strength for the next day and so on. I mean, it was 1965, you know, it's, uh, it was slow. Uh, things were picking up in several places. Wisconsin was one, uh, Michigan was another. There was some things starting in Berkeley, free speech movement, but uh, even in Boston, one of the liberal, most liberal cities in the country, it was till the late sixties, very hard to do anything. Uh, by 1966, we were getting started on trying to organize resistance, and that picked up by 67. By then, it was becoming major things, major activities, a lot of student activities and a lot of different things. Uh, all, all sorts of things were beginning, some of them pretty complicated. So remember, these were the very early days of the... Uh, feminist movement, which had a very complex effect on the young activists, because uh, I heard these kids who were, I mean, to, to say, to decide to resist the war in Vietnam when you're 18 years old is not a joke. That means you may be facing prison for the rest of your life. You might be in exile and never come back. It's not a simple decision. And here they had to face a conflict where they themselves were being presented as the oppressors. You know, if you look at the structure of the left activist movements, they were very sexist. Uh, the girls were supposed to be helping out the brave boys and that sort of thing. So there were a lot of really difficult, complex social personal issues that arose, painful for lots of people, I watched it. And uh, even among the older movements, same things. So a lot of these things were happening. There were a lot of very, uh, plus on top of this, the youth, whole youth culture was developing, which I should say, I wasn't really part of. My own personal associations were with people who were called old, like in their thirties. <laughs> But it's a different generation. So. Did you have any contact with people like Wright Mills or, or Colco or William Adman Williams? I, I know you and Howard were close. A lot of people were actors. Arnold Mayer, Stott and Lind. I mean, there was like this kind of larger group. Did you guys talk to each other? Because and and I and did students come to you and you know for for advice and for support? Of course, I was part of it all. You know, yeah. so big demonstrations, meetings, planning stuff. But. I wasn't psychologically part of it. So yes, I knew them. The, the group that I was part of actually was the Panthers. The uh -huh. Resist, the group that I was involved in, Resist, uh, did have uh, members who were very deeply involved in the black communities and they kind of, with their help, we started trying to get involved with the Panthers, which was a tricky business because they were a, very mixed group, a mixture of very serious activist organizers and basically hoodlums who sort of been there for the, see what they could pick up. And you had to kind of maneuver between them. But uh, I did get, uh, we, we did get involved not only locally, but internationally. I guess when Fred Hampton was murdered, I must have been one of the only white faces in the big audience, but I got to know the Hampton family and so on. But uh, so there were connections, but the, the sort of Woodstock style uh, part of the movement I never was part of. I mean, my friends were, but I wasn't. Remember by 68, just at the point where things were really picking up, it also started breaking up. This was a very sad development. Uh, SDS, which had been one of the leading elements by about 68, was splitting into uh, 
Maoists and weathermen, you know, two different ways of committing suicide. But, uh, and uh, a lot of strange things were happening. Uh, the uh, Ramparts, which was one of the main journals, was already beginning to drift off. You know? uh, so there was a brief moment, very brief, late 60s, where things were really peaking, coming together. Uh, I was at MIT, and it was astonishing what happened there. It's, uh, MIT was a very conservative institution, engineering school. People, but there was a group of, uh, first of all, there was activist faculty, many of them, like Salvaluria, European emigrates from the older days, and other young faculty who were activists. Most of Resist was based at MIT. Uh, and among the student body, there was a very small group, half a dozen or two, Mike Albert, Steve Shalom, Pete Bomer, a lot of people are very active since. And they managed amazingly to somehow radicalize the student body, ended up being the most radical campus in, in the country, uh, literally. Mike Albert was elected student president in 1968 on a program so radical you could barely repeat it. We had the whole campus was shut down for a couple of weeks, literally for a sanctuary for a Marine deserter. Kid who was a Marine decided he wanted to desert. You know, talked to him very carefully, made sure he understood what he was doing, he did. And uh, there were sanctuaries being set up in churches in those days. The students decided. I didn't think it was going to work, so didn't support it. But they were right. I was wrong. Just to set up a room in the student center, which there was an announcement saying, we're going to stay here with this marine deserter. We figured, I figured nothing will happen. FBI will come and pick him up. Well, turned out the whole campus was there in a couple of days, 24 hours a day. Practically the whole campus was in and out of the student center. Partly it was the sanctuary, partly it was everything that happened in the 60s, you know. Lots of funny smells that I didn't recognize. <laughs> going on and off, uh, seminars and meetings, and literally the whole campus. And it... Uh, finally led to the administration. They finally did come and arrest him, of course, but uh, after a couple of weeks, but stayed on, had a lot of consequences. A lot of scientific groups that are still functioning exist grew out of that, like Union of Concerned Scientists and others. So it had really big effects. I should say one of the, if you don't mind a little bragging, one of the peak moments of my life was part of this. After the Tet Offensive in uh, January 1968, uh, the Johnson administration realized they're going to have to wind down the war. Because if, actually, if you look at the last pages of the Pentagon Papers, it's kind of interesting. It ends at this period. Uh, the Johnson administration at first wanted to send more troops, but the Joint Chiefs were opposed. They said, we'd need the troops for civil disorder control in the United States. Too much uprising. I know a guy who wrote a book on that. Pardon? <laughs> I know a guy who wrote a book on that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to tell you about it. But it was, it was pretty interesting. So anyhow, you may recall, they decided to make peace with the students. And they made a brilliant choice. They decided to send McGeorge Bundy <laughs> he was a former dean, so he'd know how to talk to students. <laughs> Unbelievable. And they, they had a first try. They tried some very conservative uh, Catholic school out in the Midwest, and he gave a talk there. And, of course, everything went well. Nice article in the Times about how everybody's making peace. The second choice was MIT, which was not crazy from their point of view. It was a pretty conservative place. And the political science faculty, who you know, were in and out of the CIA, you know. 
So it was all set up for Bundy, big meeting at big auditorium, um, overflow audience at the student center, a panel from the uh, political science department were going to welcome and question him, but all from what are called liberals, you know, the liberal hawks, um, very pro-war. In fact, they were all involved in uh, you know, sending students to Saigon to study counterinsurgency and things like this. So the radical students, the small group, made a big fuss, and they insisted, demanded that somebody meet, that I be allowed to be on the panel for just five minutes, just brief comment. So they finally agreed, and it all went fine. Bundy gave his talk, the panel cheered him, and I got my five minutes, and I succeeded in being sufficiently obnoxious so that Bundy was infuriated. They practically had to drag him off the, off the stage. And meanwhile, the students are watching this in the student center, and they were getting all excited when he got over there. They were waving their fists in his hand, and, you know, murderer, and so on. That was the end of this, uh, the end of this peacemaking effort. But that's the kind of thing that was going on. But then within a year or two, it had really changed. The SDS had broken up. The things began to scatter. The other movements took off, which were important ones. But they had a sort of a splitting effect. By uh, the early 70s, pretty hard to keep things going. And, and how much movements had taken off, which were very important and had major effects like the feminist movement, beginnings of the environmental movement, anti-nuclear movement picked up. So lots of things happened. I mean, I think the, in fact, the consequences are very significant. You take a look at uh, 1980, Reagan came in. Reagan uh, right away tried, was sort of duplicated in Central America, what Kennedy had done in South Vietnam almost point by point, you know, white paper about how communists are taking over the world, you know, starting to send troops, and he had to back off. There were so many protests from church groups, student groups, others, that the government just had to back off, couldn't carry it off. Uh, lasting impact, and uh, taken many forms. Hey, you're listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast with Bob and Scott. And we want to thank all of you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. As always, we really appreciate all the support. Um, you can uh, subscribe on YouTube or you can listen to us on any of the major podcast platforms and you can subscribe there too. You can rate and review us, which would be really great because uh, those algorithms help us get more listeners. And then you can also follow us uh, on our webpage at greenandredpodcast.org. And then we're on all the social media, Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook and, and everything else. And if you really like us, you can help us by donating and becoming a supporter of the Green and Red Podcast. And so you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Or you can go to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button. And every dollar helps. We have a small, uh, slight overhead. And so any support helps uh, Green and Red Podcast bring you new episodes all the time. In talking about the, the breakup of the, of the left, like in that period in the late 60s and into the 70s, we know that there's a, a certain level of state repression, like, like the FBI's COINTELPRO program. And I'm, and I'm wondering how much of that you saw, like the actual effects of it or the actual acts by FBI provocateurs or, or et cetera. Well, first, the effects were very strong on the black movements. In fact, they were destroyed. The main thrust of the FBI war was against the black movements. And there it was really severe. Uh, the, the, with a, not only, you know, actually got to the point of... Uh, Gestapo-style murder in the Fred Hampton case. And uh, all of this had a, a lot more. This had a real chilling effect. And within the black movement, it was demoralizing. 
elsewhere there were serious effects like uh, Pete Bomer who I mentioned was uh, by then he was teaching at San Diego State he was handed he was pounded out of the university by FBI initiated uh, programs and there were a lot of things like that yeah but I think that wasn't the main impact on the white movements they were it was disrupt I mean first of all by the late 60s every movement group got to understand that you have provocateurs in, inside and uh, you know you could they weren't hard to pick out like if there's some guy in the group who's dressed like a Hollywood version of a hippie you know and yelling <laughs> and so on he's probably going to show up as a police informer at the next trial, you know, so you avoid him. And uh, like in, in Resist, where we were working with cases that had a lot of human consequences, deserters and so on, if, if there was something really serious uh, involving some person's life, we would always handle it with affinity groups, never, never in the main group. And that was understood because you figured there's somebody in there who's probably from... Uh, the Red Squad or somewhere, you know. And, but, but groups got to adjust to that. In fact, they even made fun of it. You know, sometimes lead them on fake chases and things like this. It was, became a kind of a game, you know. <laughs> but uh, there were some very funny incidents. I remember when people went out to the beach one day and they noticed a group of guys in jackets and ties sitting on the beach, not far from them, figure, okay, we know who they are, and lead them off somewhere, and then follow them and to get lost and stuff like that. It was, uh, it was substantial, but how much of a, aside from the black movements, it didn't seem to me it had a major destructive effect. What do you think of like the, um, like Louis Menon has recently been all over the place. He's, I guess he's written a book where he's kind of blaming um, the kind of radicalism of the left, uh, the, you know, not going, you know, trying to create a, a movement with the labor movement and, and supporting Hanoi and, you know, cultural leftism. And then you have like the Todd Gitlin argument saying we went too far. We should have supported Humphrey. What, what do you think of that? I mean, it was there. It was there with the weathermen, for example. Yeah. In fact, if you look at it, there were two groups. There were the Maoists who were standing outside of the General Electric plant with uh, handing out little red books and saying, let's have a revolution, you know, was one group. And, it was, and some of them were very serious, actually, joined the workforce to try to organize from within. And some of them were, had a, some of it was serious, some of it was romanticized. But the weathermen uh, were a, a destructive force. I mean, they, their conception was... Uh, if we smash windows and anger people and so on, that'll bring a revolution. I mean, I actually took part in meeting with Vietnamese where they were pleading with them not to do it, saying, look, we don't want you to feel good. We'd like to survive, you know, and uh, don't anger construction workers. That's not helping us. No, but uh, so there was something of that, but I think it was pretty marginal, frankly. I mean, the main thrusts of the movement were very constructive, and it really changed the country. You know, it's just a different country, in many ways, much more civilized. It's, uh, I mean, I think the real sense of the elite reaction you get from books like, uh, say, The Crisis of Democracy uh, should be read more carefully. In fact, when uh, it's, this is the liberal internationalists, the Trilateral the Carter administration, basically. But they were very much upset by the increase in democracy. So there's too much democracy. It's dangerous. The state can't control it all. We need more moderation in democracy. Uh, universities, we have to have more indoctrination of the young. It's their phrase. Not enough indoctrination. Sam Huntington's contribution 
and uh, make sure that if they, the press is getting out of control, you know, the, which is, if you look at the press, it's unbelievable, but it was a little bit of drift away from orthodoxy. That's too much. May even force have state has to come in to repress it. You got to get rid of this too much democracy. Uh, that's the liberal elite reaction on the right, much more extreme, of course. But uh, it paves the way to the big business counter offensive of the 70s, which ultimately left to the, led to the neoliberal disaster. Yeah. Meanwhile, the movement developed and grew and they couldn't repress them. It's bigger and bigger all the time. I think there's more activism now than there was in the 60s. We, we saw a lot of that last summer, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty remarkable. It's, and it seemed spontaneous, but it's the result of a lot of work to try to lay the groundwork for it. The, you mentioned democracy and the expansion of democracy. Scott, did you did you have something you wanted to ask her? Oh. The, the new left, that was a major issue, right, of SDS, participatory democracy. It's in the Port Huron Statement. And when I teach this, I always, like, really stress that because I said this really terrified not just, like, the conservative ruling class, but but liberals as well. And so what you just said kind of corresponds to that, the idea that you could go out and kind of have a, have this role to play, you know, uh, in, in the community with police oversight boards or uh, tenants unions. Uh, I mean, did, did you see a lot of that? Did you have a lot of people talking to you about that? I have to remember, after all, that, and as you know, I've written a lot about this, but uh, liberal elites have always been passionately opposed to democracy. I mean, just read Walter Lippmann, uh, Harold Glasswell, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr. They regard democracy as a real danger. Uh, so Lippmann's particularly interesting because he's you know, main liberal public intellectual of the 20th century. Uh, Roosevelt, Kennedy, Wilson, liberal. So democracy, we, I mean, what he wrote about it and is often quoted, it's, you know, people have to be spectators, not participants. They're stupid and ignorant. Uh, the we responsible men have to be protected from the trampling and the war roar of the bewildered herd. You know, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian of the establishment, uh, have to feed people with uh, emotionally potent oversimplifications and necessary illusions to keep them from bothering us. And, I mean, that's goes straight back to the framing of the Constitution, which is, of course, about a block democracy that's a threat. And it runs right through the liberal elites. In the Kennedy years, it took an interesting form with the self-congratulatory uh, technocratic and meritocratic elite. Uh, you see it in the discussions, I think, in the Trilateral Commission and elsewhere, they made these distinctions between uh, policy-oriented intellectuals who are the good guys, uh, the ones who work out the kind of policy and work out the details for the guys with power, those are the good guys. Then the value-oriented intellectuals, the people of values, that's really scary. People want rights and justice and democracy and all this stuff, that's really frightening. Got to get rid of those guys. And that's the liberals. No, I'm not talking about the right. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing, nothing surprising about this. And it stayed pretty much the same. The, the liberal intellectual world is still highly conformist. Actually, I think it's, it has changed some since the, the 60s did have an impact in the colleges and universities as well. Uh, people just came in who had been through that experience and see things differently, do things differently. Uh, you even see it in the media. At one point you said, as far as the universities are concerned, I think, they're, I think that the effects of the new radicalism have been in general very positive. The universities have been open as never before in my lifetime to new ideas, independent thinking outside of the natural sciences during the years of hegemony of Cold War ideology and glorification of liberal state capitalism, the universities became willing servants of state and private power. Student radicalism has raised a belated and very healthy challenge to this subservience. 
And so would you say that this opening, that we're seeing this opening now, because we're, we're very much in a talking earlier about this unprecedented activism. We saw more people on the streets last summer than we'd ever seen arguably before in US history. And so we're seeing, and we're seeing response, a, a reaction from both liberals and, and the right. But are we seeing a sort of resurgence and in, in even exceeding uh, what we saw in the 60s and 70s? I think the universities are more open now than they were at any time in my lifetime. Largely the long-term effect of the activism of the 60s and the aftermath. A lot of it is the later years. And slowly it has an effect. Uh, people come into the universities who went through those experiences. I mean, you see it all over the place. Take, say, the 1619. Uh, study in the New York Times. You wouldn't have seen that a couple of years ago. It's, uh, in fact, pretty interesting in the last few days when the uh, Israeli attacks on Gaza, kind of reactions you got in the mainstream newspapers was like nothing ever before. Uh, I've never before seen mainstream columnists saying uh, we should stop military aid to Israel. Uh, that was unheard of. You couldn't pronounce those words. Now it's in the mainstream. Uh, and it was very interesting to look at the demonstrations. You didn't have the usual pro-Israel demonstrations. They weren't there. A lot of demonstrations against the attacks on Gaza and the West Bank, but no reaction. Now you're starting to get it in the press. It's op-eds from sort of the mainstream conception saying there's two sides to the matter. You got to look at our side too, but boy, that's a change. Yeah. That was the only side before. You know, couldn't even question it. Well, you know, things are clearly bad, but I, I often get people rolling their eyes because when they say that, I say, yeah, but it's not 1954 anymore. And I think sometimes the left gets caught up in its own you know, misery and oppression and doesn't realize there have been some successes there worth worth mm -hmm. touting and worth building on because it's not 1954. It's bad. It, it, well, you know better than me how bad it is, but it's it's not 1954 anymore either. Oh, that's true. Then it was just quiescence and subordination. Yeah. Very few voice voices of uh, asking anything. And in fact, as I said, even in the, you know, when Kennedy started building the war, a major war after all, no, nothing. Yeah. I have, I have a kind of a, a personal question because it, it meant so much to me. Um, one of my segues into doing what I do now is reading first Gabriel Coco and, and you, well, at the same time, really Gabriel Coco and your essay, The Responsibility of Intellectuals, which had a huge influence on me and, you know, who knows, probably thousands of others. And I was curious. I mean, it's it's about Vietnam. But what, why did you particularly want to address it to the intellectual community, you know, uh, uh, and, and make that kind of statement, essentially making a comparison, a very powerful comparison at the end with, with uh, the Nazi paymaster, right? What have I done? Well, you have to look at the history of that essay. It appeared, it appeared in a place which you'd never believe. It was a talk at Harvard to the Hillel Foundation oh. in 1966 which they published in their journal, Mosaic. The oh, I did not know that. Uh, Bob Silver, <laughs> who was the editor of the New York Review, somehow got yeah. of it and asked me if I could write it up and you know, add the footnotes and so on and make it look respectable for the journal. But it was aimed at the Harvard intellectual elite. The liberal, that's the liberals, the Kennedy liberals, basically. And it's right at the center of it. And how did they respond? I, I, I assume you didn't make new friends after that. <laughs> Not many. <laughs> if I try to, fortunately, it's a mutual dislike, so I don't care. But, yeah. Um, it's not part of that society. Now, if, if you were going to write that today, would it be very different? Well, it would have somewhat different choices, but fundamentally none. Yeah. I mean, I think these are long-term features of the intellectual community, which is just 
overwhelmingly subordinated to power. It's uh, actually Henry Kissinger, who's a master of the art, put it pretty well. And he said that the somewhere the I think he remembers exact words, but something like the task of the responsible intellectuals is to articulate the positions of the people in power you know, to put them in the right form, which of course he was doing. So if uh, Nixon in a drunken fit says, uh, let's bomb the shit out of everyone in Cambodia, then Kissinger tells the Air Force uh, uh, anything that flies against anything that moves, so pure genocide. That's his job as a responsible intellectual. And I think that pretty much remains. One of my favorite articles, which you may recall, is by McGeorge Bundy in 1968 in Foreign Affairs, uh, right at the time that all this stuff was peaking. And it's about the critics of the administration policy in Vietnam. He says they're serious, honest critics who look at our tactical errors and say you should have done it differently and so on. Then he said there are what he called the wild men in the wings, mm. the people who question our motives or who look at the roots of what we're doing as if we could be anything but benevolent, uh, magnificent people trying to do the best for everything. And that remains without a change. So it's pretty striking that 1975, when the war formally ended, uh, of course, everybody had to write something about it. And I reviewed it all. It was pretty interesting. The review, the views ranged from the right wing, you know, stab in the back, didn't try hard enough, and so on and so forth, over to the left, which is always the more interesting. So way out at the left, you get Anthony Lewis, New York Times, can't go farther than that. I wrote a very interesting article in the Times saying we just captured the liberal intellectual mentality perfectly. This is 1975. I don't have to tell you what Indochina looked like by then. Okay, but here's Lewis says, the U.S. began the war with blundering efforts to do good by definition. Uh, but by 1969, was clear that it was a disaster and we couldn't bring democracy to South Vietnam at a cost acceptable to ourselves. So kind of mistake all along. And that's the way the war is looked at, even by much of the left. It's called a failure. Why was it a failure? It was a big success. I mean, they achieved the major goals. They destroyed Indochina. It's not going to be a model for anyone. They stole dictatorships in every other country in the regions that never spread, you know, never compelled Japan to accommodate to an independent Southeast Asia. Substantial victory. Yeah. Even the left doesn't understand that. Yeah. Because they're all captured in the idea that somehow we made a mistake. That's the worst that we can do. Mm -hmm. We can't be rational imperialists. That's mm -hmm. inconceivable. Uh, Some years ago, I think the 30th anniversary, I did an interview and I said, if, if LBJ came back to life, he'd say, hot damn, we won this war, you know? Um, well, it was a very interesting article quoting Bundy. Uh, I could find it in, in retrospect when Bundy, Mac Bundy was talking about it. He said, you know, we should have really stopped the war in 1965 after the um, Suharto, the massacres in Indonesia, because that really meant nobody's going to fall, no dominoes. We've got the whole area under control, all run by vicious murderers. So what do we need the war in Vietnam for anymore? Smart guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wish the left could understand that. Now, when you brought up issues like Timor later or, or you know, Bangladesh, did even people on the left really have much interest in what you were saying or? It's Timor, which I worked on for a long time. Yeah. One of the worst crimes in the post-war period. It took 25 years before 
to build up any opposition to it. And it's still not understood. So uh, get to say Samantha Power's book on, you know, what's it, I, think I forget the name of the book, The Problem uh -huh. from Hell or something. Yeah. How we failed to respond properly to the crimes of others. Others, crucially, never our own crimes because we don't commit crimes. Uh, but there's, a, there's about two lines on East Timor. He says, in East Timor, we did the wrong thing. We looked away. Looked away? Probably ran the war. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her own predecessor, Moynihan, at the UN took pride in how he rendered the United Nations utterly incapable of responding to it after the Indonesians had massacred 60,000 people. He thought it was a great achievement. Uh, Kissinger, the U.S. was pouring arms and probably uh, ran it. That's the farthest you can get. And I, I don't particularly blame her. She grew up in the Harvard environment. What else do you hear? Liberal intellectuals can't do anything wrong. Actually, the 1975 thing is something pretty interesting. At the same time, the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations was doing, it continues to do extensive polling studies of attitudes on foreign affairs. And in 1975, when way at the left, you had Lewis saying, you know, mistake, et cetera, et cetera. Public opinion uh, was amazing. About 70% of the public said the war was not a mistake. It was fundamentally wrong and immoral. And they kept asking that question for about 15 years, kept getting the same answer. The uh, liberal social scientist who runs it, John, really never asked the question, what do they mean? What do people mean? You know, finally, after 15 years, he said what they meant. What they meant is it's too costly for us. Well, maybe. Or maybe they meant it was fundamentally wrong and immoral, not a mistake. But that's unthinkable. You can't even ask that question. Well, when I think of the New Left, especially in, in the area I study, which is foreign policy, and, and I was influenced by William Mountman Williams and Walt Lefevre and Gabriel Coco and all, all, the, all those people, Lloyd Gardner and Marilyn Young and Tom Patty, you know, go on and on. And the thing that stood out to me was, was this stress on the, the economic motives, you know, how American corporations wanted resources and labor and investment and all this. And it seems as I've gone through my career, I've something that should be, to me, uh, just accepted naturally it isn't. And I, I find myself agreeing on foreign policy issues with people like Rand Paul, or Ron, not Rand Paul, Ron Paul, you know. Um, and, and I'm just curious, I, I wrote a, a piece in 1999, I, I talked to you about it at the time, called What Happened to the New Left? And I said, you know, what, you know that was my point. Like, it was, they were right, yet everybody's abandoning this. And now we have these people who were so upset at Trump that they were like upset that there was there were peace overtures with North Korea, like and that was a liberal. Those were the liberals. So how do you how do you get to them? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. It's just these are you see it on every issue. Uh, I mean, take uh, let's go to the Middle East. Take the Abraham Accords. The reaction to that is quite interesting. Big, you know, the agreements between the formal agreements between Israel and uh, UAE and Bahrain and Egypt. And, I mean, people are celebrating it as if it's a wonderful achievement. What you have is the most reactionary, brutal states in the region are raising their tacit relations to formal relations uh, under the aegis of the most reactionary a government that the United States has ever had. That's something to celebrate. And it included, incidentally, resources. Like, why'd they include Morocco? Because Morocco has a near monopoly on phosphates. And the their takeover of Western Sahara, which Trump authorized, extends the monopoly. Phosphates are crucial for agriculture. Can't replace them. They're as important as oil. So here you have all the resources, Middle East oil resources, the agricultural resources, 
Uh, Israel provides the muscle right in the middle. That's an alliance under the control of the United States. Um, it's a geostrategic triumph. We're supposed to celebrate it. Yeah. You know, um, you know, talking about the Middle East, and we talked about Palestine uh, a few minutes ago. You know, historically, how much has the new left taken up the issue of Palestine? Like, it, front page of the Washington Post, I believe, last weekend was about how. Black Lives Matter had helped move the issue, which is, you know, what we discussed before. But, you know, the Israeli attacks on on the Palestinians have gone on for decades, and I'm and I'm wondering the the role that any role that the new left might have played, you know, 60s, 70s, before, after. Well, and the remember American policy shifted radically on the Middle East in 1967. Before that, the United States was more or less supportive of Israel, but it wasn't a holy issue. 67, everything changed. And intellectual opinion radically changed, along with U.S. policy. Uh, in 1967, Israel performed a major service to the United States. Uh, there was a war going on between radical Islam and secular nationalism. Saudi Arabia and Egypt. The United States, very much like Britain, supported before it supported radical Islam against secular nationalism. Israel stepped in in 67 and smashed up the forces of secular nationalism, supported radical Islam. That was a big boost to US policy. Policy changed radically at that time. And the whole intellectual community came along with it. I mean, you take a look at journals like Commentary. They were non-Zionist before 67. And nobody was a Zionist. But after 67, everybody became a fanatic Zionist. Now, the New Left didn't go that far. They tried to say something moderate. By now, it looks almost embarrassingly moderate. And they were castigated for that, you know for me too, you know, for trying to say something other than Israel's the most magnificent places anywhere and the Palestinians are all gangsters and terrorists. You try to deviate from that, you were anti-Semite, uh, genocide, and so on and so forth. Uh, that was all through the early 60s. And uh, the left took a, I mean, at most they supported maybe a mild two-state position, which is the international consensus. But what was actually going on, you could barely discuss. In fact, you could barely talk about this issue until recently. It's no joke. I mean, I've been giving talks about it for 50 years, till about 10 or 15 years ago. I had to have police protection, even at my own campus, because you just couldn't say anything about it. And finally, these... Uh, Actually, these Israeli attacks on Gaza had a big impact. They changed opinion pretty sharply. And uh, things opened up, and it's quite different now. Now you can talk about it. The Black Lives Matter did have a big effect. They just changed the general way in which people look at oppression and violence and racism and so on, and that transfers over. So yes, I think that's that's all true. That's had a big effect. It's just the last few years. You know, in, in nineteen in nineteen sixty eight, you know, we we've talked a lot about what was happening with the left, the new left domestically, but you know, there was also a, a new left in Paris and uh, Mexico City and uh, you know in, in Czechoslovakia, et cetera. And so, and then in twenty nineteen, we also uh, you know we saw a lot of uh, of a left on the streets in places like Chile and and Barcelona and et cetera. And I'm I'm just wondering the the influence of the global left in nineteen sixty eight, and then also what you might think about the the influence of the global left in today. On I I because I, I, I've often made the connection between what happened last summer after the police murder of George Floyd with what had been happening in Chile and Barcelona, I think Beirut, and places like that. I think there's some supportive effect. But if you look at them, they have their own roots, separate roots. In Chile, it's getting rid of the 
horrible legacy of the Pinochet regime in the, the United States. It's 400 years of vicious racism. Um, and there are some connections. And you know, it is somewhat supportive to see people elsewhere out in the streets, but I wouldn't push it too far. I think it's mostly some psychological support for things that are happening domestically. And it go on for years. I mean, take the George Floyd. It didn't happen when he was killed. It was going on for years of activist organizing. That's what, that's what laid the basis for what happened when a spark comes and the kindling's ready. Hi, you're listening to the Green and Red Podcast with today's special guest, Noam Chomsky. We really appreciate all your support. And if you want to support us further, please think about becoming a patron of the Green and Red Podcast and go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast or go to our website and become a one-time donor at screenredpodcast.org and you can just hit that support button and that will help us out a lot. You can also share uh, the podcast and the YouTube version of Green and Red. Uh, go to YouTube, you can subscribe, you can subscribe. We're on all the uh, podcast platforms. Uh, rate and review because that helps bump up our numbers, which is really important. Uh, we're uh, also on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and we have a medium page, so we're easy to find and we wanna keep bringing you um, outstanding left coverage of uh, history and politics, such as this interview with Professor Noam Chomsky. Just a, a couple more things. Um, later in the, in the 80s, you and Ed wrote about the media extensively, the propaganda model. Was that already in your mind in the 60s? Were you already kind of aware of that, talking about it, trying to kind of make sense of it? Well, uh, Ed, Ed Herman and I slightly differed in our conception of this. I mean, he regarded the media as the main topic. In my view, the media are kind of a reflection of the intellectual culture. So my own interests are a little bit more what you, what was in that, say, Responsibility of Intellectuals article and most of the work I've done since. Now, the media are an example of it. And that's why we took the liberal media. We didn't talk about the right media. Uh, too easy. But... Uh, it's the liberal media, which are the kind of the guardians. They're the ones who say, here's as far as you can go, not a millimeter beyond. And that's very much like the intellectual culture generally. I think they're in many ways in tandem. The media are easier to study. You can count up the number of articles, you know, on El Salvador and Poland or something when you do the general intellectual culture can't do that kind of study. But I think there's, uh, I see them as reflecting the same fundamental tendencies. Sure. My own follow-up book to Manufacturing Consent, Necessary Illusions, is mostly about the political world and the intellectual world. Of course, it reflects itself in the media. Today, the left is often kind of both characterized and, and, and mocked as this kind of woke left with cancel culture and identity politics. And I mean, I think there is some truth to that. How do you think that affects kind of the overall nature of, of organizing and, and these movements, which are working on kind of, you know, issues in the streets? Well, the cancel culture, the woke culture, political correctness there, identity politics, they're all picking up on authentic issues. But, uh, you know, if you, if you want to have a serious functioning left, these crucial issues have to be integrated into a much broader picture, which doesn't efface and in fact supports the centers on class issues which are right at the center of all of it. If those get effaced and you are just working on your own identity and how you feel about things, it's gonna be harmful. It reminds me very much of the late 60s when authentic issues were being brought up that had been suppressed, like feminist issues, you know, they'd been way in the background. Okay, they were brought up, it was important, major issues, real ones, 
change the country, but when they're done in a way which undermines uh, the joint efforts that we're all involved in on broader things, that can be disruptive and dangerous. We've got to, and I think that we're, we're seeing that now too. Now, of course, the right wing loves it. You know, they're yeah. they're they're uh, it's a gift, yeah. the highest thing they can imagine. Yeah, but they can't. I'm the right wing for ever since Nixon, at least, has understood the Republican Party. They cannot approach the public with their own policies. You can't go to the public and say, I want to screw you. I want to give everything to the wealthy. Please vote for me. Some can't do that. So they just had to shift to what are called cultural issues. Somehow, if you can pick people up on you know, white supremacy, uh, misogyny, uh, racism, something like that, then maybe you can organize it. And unfortunately, that works. I don't know if you saw the article this morning in the Times on the Republicans and the QAnon. Uh, that's pretty scary when you look at the figures. And yes, that works. We've seen it in the past. But that's what they have to do. Yeah. If the right wing is going to follow its policies of service to corporate power and ultra wealth, they're just going to have to shift the, the yeah. discussion totally to these culture and so on. Yeah. And you shouldn't be giving them that gift, yeah. you know, aside from the fact that it's, it's wrong in the first place. I, I could talk to you for, for hours about this, but I know we've, we've been going on for some time. Um, you know, Thank you so much. I just, uh, I know Scott has a follow, uh, a last question, but I just, uh, if somebody's interested in this, like, who do you like? Obviously, you start by reading Noam Chomsky, right? But among people today, I mean, is there somebody who you think is kind of on top of things, somebody who you think is worth listening to or reading? There's a lot of very good people. I don't really want to mention names because they're okay. Would, and I don't mention someone else, but uh, I think it's a very lively period with really okay. good people working. Thank you so much. Uh, I think Scott has a final question, but I just uh, appreciate this so much. We, we, uh, it means so much to us. And I wanted to talk to you about this for a while. So um, I really appreciate it. And Scott. Yeah. Uh, just as a, a final wrap up question, if you want to share any like last thoughts with us about the overall influence of the new left today, you know, we saw uh, participatory democracy. We saw the black Panthers with community organizing programs, breakfast programs, those sorts of things. And then, you know, moving in today, like especially during the pandemic, we saw these mutual aid networks, you know, build up community organizing, mass street protest. I'm just wondering if you have any last last thoughts to share with us about the overall well, influence of the new left. Pick up on what Bob said before. Go back and think of the '50s, quiescent, supportive. You know, do your work. You know, don't don't look at anything. Um, the 60s broke that all up, opened up all sorts of new issues, things that were never discussed, fundamental issues in the society. I'm going to take something we didn't mention. Uh, what happened to the native population? You look at the scholarly literature in the 1960s, scholarly literature, anthropologists and so on. Uh, you know, a couple of... Uh, Hunter gatherers, stragglers around, didn't really amount to much, and so on. Well, now it's understood it was massive genocide. That started in the 60s and the late, early 70s, actually. Things just cracked open, opened up. In this case, kind of from the outside, the main breakthrough on scholarship was Francis Jennings, who was not within the intellectual mainstream, who was running a museum wrote a book called The Invasion of America, which broke it open. Then comes a lot of scholarship study. By now it's part of general understanding. You know, it's after all hundreds of years, nobody paid any attention to it. When I was a kid, we played cowboys and Indians. And we were the cowboys killing the Indians. You know, it's just, yeah, naturally. I mean, all of that's gone. And that's, a, that's in just about every area of life. It's a huge contribution. Civilized the country enormously. And that's why it's called the time of troubles. Just civilized the country. Can't have that. 
Thank you, Noam, so much. Um, you've been an inspiration for, for, for a lot of us for decades, and we, we really appreciate giving us this time. It's, uh, we're, we're a small, scrappy media, so it means a lot to us. It's been a, it's been a pleasure okay. talking to you today. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll bug you about coming on again sometime. So. Great. <laughs> it's good to see you. And Happen Clinton said their greetings still. Yeah. yeah. Got to go off to the next. Yeah. Take Bye. care. Have a great one. Thanks. Take care. Yeah. See you later. Bye. That was really great, Scott. That was, that was really fantastic. Yeah, it was a real honor having uh, Noam Chomsky on the Green and Red podcast today. And and folks, uh, you'll be hearing this interview along with, uh, there'll be a, we'll have a number of clips from it on our YouTube channel. But uh, just a reminder to check out Green and Red podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and subscribe to us on YouTube so you can see these great clips we're about to put up. And then uh, we have a Medium page, which is Green and Red Media, and then I would also just remind you that if you really like the Green and Red podcast and you want to keep hearing great content like this from us, then become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red media and you'll become a recurring donor. You know, it could be a dollar a month. It could be $50 a month, whatever, whatever you got. And, you know, it's the cost of a beer would be $5 a month if you wanted to follow us. Uh, if you want to become a, a patron. And then if you want to just make a one-time donation, you can go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button and make a one-time donation. And we are much more intoxicating than a beer. Yes. Know? Yes, we are much and, more intoxicated. And a beer can't interview Noam Chomsky. And a beer can't interview Noam Chomsky. Although, Although I've had a few bottles of whiskey that had me saying things. So. I, I would also say that a, a, a beer would contribute to us having a really good interview in uh, yeah. preparation, which has happened for 20 years now. So yeah. uh, everybody stay safe out there and we'll, t and you'll, we'll be back with the next e episode of the smoky, silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast before you know it.